Wow. The, the cheering is a lot, guys. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, but thanks. I appreciate it. I, I woke up this morning just really excited to see everybody. So thanks for being here. <laughs> um, all right. I, mean, I guess I'll just put this here. I really wish that there were music stands that weren't noisy, so someone should invent that for me. Thanks, because they're just noisy. Um, all right, <laughs> so good morning. <laughs> I promise I'm not as out of sorts as I perhaps just presented to be. Um, good morning, baby. We're so delighted to have our baby with us today. Sorry, our baby, your baby, oh, our baby. <laughs> And Tim's baby um, is with us this morning, which is a really wonderful joy. Um, it's another reason why I was so excited to come today, to be here with you. So yes, it's good for lots of reasons to be here with you this morning. Um, and I wanted to start off with the quote that I had offered at the beginning from Jennifer Rosner, when she said, how we read our Bibles matters. So if I had to answer the question, why did you choose this topic for your very first sermon series? <laughs> Uh, my best effort at a single sentence answer would be that. How we read our Bibles matters. You know, how we read our Bible will inform and guide the choices that we make as we engage with our world. The decisions we make, the decisions that we make on how we treat other people, like all of this is informed by how we read our Bibles. And to quote Jewish New Testament scholar Amy Jill Levine, if you get the Jewish context wrong, you will certainly get Jesus wrong. So that's why I began the series the way I did, with talking broadly about supersessionism, remember the replacement theology, and the damage that that's done. But that ideology is still being taught, right? Perpetuated by the way people are reading their Bibles or as an adjacent area of concern, consider patriarchy's vast consequences as another example of like really something harmful that people use scripture to defend. Our bigger picture, the bigger picture is really crucial. And it not only helps, uh, helps us to make better choices because we are reading then with more information and more context, but it also makes our personal experience with God's word so much richer, right? Knowing all of the ways Jesus was just sort of a regular rabbi is kind of cool to think about. It helps us meditate a little more on the humanity of our incarnate God, too. Rabbi Jesus, our sovereign God, has literally walked that proverbial mile in our human-sized shoes. Sandals, right? His feet got dirty. His feet got muddy. His toenails maybe got too long, you know, like there's just thinking about Jesus walking around Galilee as a rabbi helps our imagination create vivid images when we read our Bibles. We can better see our rabbi Jesus with his prayer shawl and the tassels. Jesus walked the earth and the closeness of relationship our God has with God's creation is worth spending our time on to understand. So the Jewishness of Jesus matters. 
And so on this, the final Sunday with this series, A Rabbi Named Jesus, um, I know that there may have been a few moments here and there that felt kind of more like a lecture than a sermon. And for that, I really do apologize. <laughs> um, this information has all felt so critical. And I was trying to edit it down, I promise. But if you are interested in further study, please reach out to me. I definitely have a reading list for you that I can suggest. So this morning, we're going to be focusing on the calendar that the first century Jews lived by. Their rhythm was set by the calendar, right? And this rhythm of life is what the Lord gave to them. It was marked by seasonal feasts, holidays, festivals, and Sabbath, or in Hebrew, Shabbat. And we will finish up this morning with a brief look at the rhythm of life for us as Christ followers, and then we will celebrate communion together. So something interesting that has come up in my research a few times is that there are actually a lot of Jewish writers and thought leaders who have an enduring respect for Jesus. And this surprised me a little, to be honest with you. I mean, I guess I wasn't sure what to expect, but to know that there have been modern rabbis speaking highly of Jesus and using Jesus' teachings, I don't know, I was surprised by that. I, I think it's another one of those kind of narratives that were handed down and just sort of accept, maybe, uh, and it caused me to kind of assume that all Jewish people just probably reject everything about Jesus outright, you know, but, but no. Quoting from Rabbi Jacob Neusner, generations of Jewish thinkers have praised Jesus. They placed him in the tradition of Elijah, a miracle worker and a prophet, while others have praised Jesus as a great rabbi, a great teacher and interpreter of the Torah. Christianity, however, Right? We do not regard Jesus as a miracle-working prophet, nor do we worship a rabbi. We believe that Jesus is Christ, Messiah, the Holy One of God, foretold by prophets, the one who was and is to come, the very nature of our triune God incarnate in human flesh. This is our Jesus. And God chose a specific moment in time to join humanity. As theologian N.T. Wright phrases it, God's future came rushing into the present to meet us. We agree that Jesus lived a perfect life, showing us the true nature of God's kingdom, all while providing a model for us as we seek to become Christ-like in our own lives. And that life that he lived, as we have been discussing, was decidedly a Jewish life, and Jewish life was and is structured by their God-ordained calendar. Rabbi Evan Moffick explains it this way. After freeing the Israelites from Egypt, the first commandment God gave the people was the commandment to establish a calendar. The priority of this commandment underscores the way time distinguishes the enslaved from the free. God wanted the Israelites to immediately unlearn the posture of following a calendar that someone else set and to begin to craft a way of inhabiting time that oriented them toward God and toward neighbor in a life-giving blend of work and rest. And I know it's a long quote on the slide, but I just had to put the whole thing there. I mean, first of all, I love the way he writes. But think about this with me. The thing that order their lives, their calendar, is designed to orient them towards God and towards neighbor. And it should be life-giving. It was not supposed to be oppressive or burdensome to keep these rhythms and rituals. But this was what Jesus reminded his listener of, wasn't it? When he was asked in Matthew 22, what is the greatest commandment of the law? 
which of the great laws of, in the Torah, master teacher, is the greatest? And do you remember what Jesus said? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So those two commandments underpin everything else. They are supposed to be the scaffolding, right, for literally anything else that we do in life. And so the calendar then serves as a tool to help the people of God live faithful lives. Now, learning a little bit about these holidays that are mentioned in the Gospels helps us also to place real human Jewish man Jesus within the cultural context of his family, his friends, and his people group. So we're not going to get into a lot of great details, but I do think it's useful to place these within their seasons just to help us kind of grasp the flow of life for Rabbi Jesus. And in an effort to give us a basic framework, we do need to do a little bit more definition. You know, I know it's your favorite part, definition time. Um, yeah, so the calendar that we use is called the Gregorian calendar. It's solar-based and has 365 days. We've been using it for nearing on 300 years, although it was first unveiled in 1582 by Pope Gregory, hence the name, okay? Um, and all the, there's a whole story there also, which is a little fun, like internet rabbit hole, another one. We've got two now today to go down. Um, but so, I mean, if you care to later, there was like way more drama around the implementation of a calendar system than I ever expected I would find. So I'd spent too long scrolling and like, what? On the historychannel.com. Anyway, so uh, the Jewish calendar is based upon a lunar cycle. So there's just 355 days in their full year. And this helps us understand why the Jewish holidays are always on different days in our Gregorian calendar, right? An easy example of this is how Hanukkah will shift around. Some years it's coincided with Thanksgiving, while others it has started right around Christmas time or anywhere in between, right? Perhaps you've noticed this as you've moved through our culture's holidays. As Rabbi Moffick explains, again in his great book, What Every Christian Needs to Know About Judaism, the structure of Jewish days is also noticeable, or notable, excuse me, notable. Also noticeable. The day begins, he says, at night. When the sun falls, the date changes. It's a totally different system. Moffat quotes another rabbi who says that for Jews, their calendar is their catechism. Their calendar, in other words, is what holds their lessons about their beliefs, their doctrine, their dogma. Their calendar is what held them together, too, when they became spread out in diaspora. The rituals and rhythms remained what they had in common, right? Even if a Jewish family found themselves to be the only ones in their village, they knew that they were celebrating right alongside others all around the world. Now, for first century Jews living in Judea, the temple in Jerusalem was the primary place for celebrating festivals. In fact, the festivals that are mentioned in the Gospels, which Jesus is said to have participated in, are all festivals which would have seen all Jewish people traveling to Jerusalem for the holiday, you know, all who could. Side note, uh, not all of the Jewish holidays are these pilgrimage type. Um, if you're interested in learning more about all of the holidays, get in touch with me. As I said earlier, I have a reading list, excellent book recommendations. But this is an interesting facet of these Jewish holidays, though, the traveling, right? Going to one central place to celebrate as one giant family. And it connects, actually, with a core attribute of Judaism, which is the embodiment of one's faith. 
I'll touch on that again a little bit later too, but think about this with me for a minute. Um, so like what is Judaism usually known for? Right? Like what do most people commonly associate with someone who's a practicing Jewish person? Did your mind maybe go to kosher? Right? Yeah, the boundaries of the foods that one eats, right? So what a person puts into their body matters in Judaism. In her book, Finding Messiah, Jennifer Rosner explains that Judaism is not a religion where lots of time is spent contemplating the afterlife. It's a religion, she says, that is lived out here and now, in the world and in the body. Much of what the Torah does is provide instruction for how to live a holy life here with this body what they did with their bodies and what they put into their bodies was important then in Jesus' time, and it remains important because our physical body and our mind and our soul are all integrated into one unified being. So the holidays then all involve doing certain things with one's body and experiencing certain things with one's senses. All right, so the three holidays I'm going to review are the three that are mentioned in the Gospels, as I said, because these are the ones that we have a record of Jesus participating in. Um, we know from Luke's Gospel, though, that Jesus grew up within a family that was observant in their customs. Um, like, as I mentioned last week, Jesus was circumcised, we know, and presented at the temple per custom. Um, and that story about Jesus being accidentally left behind when he was 12, right? The context, you may recall, was the Passover. Luke says Jesus' family had traveled to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. So that implies that they were observant in their lifestyle. And remember, Jesus was growing in favor with God and with men. So he likely celebrated every holiday, not just these three. So I've organized the festivals by season. Uh, first autumn, then winter, then spring. And I did this because the new year in the Jewish calendar typically falls in September. And that holiday, by the way, is Rosh Hashanah. If you've ever seen that on your calendar and wondered what that is, Jewish New Year. Um, and this year begins at sundown on September 15th. Also, all of these are holidays that are still celebrated. Um, but since we're talking about the first century in Jesus, I'm just going to be speaking in past tense just for clarifying. <laughs> um, and I'll be in John's Gospel for these first two, which in your pew Bible begins on chapter 7, 1659, if you care to open it up. Um, kind of skim along if you want. I'm just kind of briefly looking through a couple of chapters. I'm only putting a few key verses on the slide. Um, so John chapter 7, if you'd like to. And we're beginning with the Festival of Tabernacles, right? So it's typically in October. It's also called Sukkot, the Festival of Tents, or of booths, booths. The holiday is called that, all of those things, it's called that for the building of a temporary structure outside, which is called a sukkah. The people spend seven days of the festival eating and sleeping in these temporary booths they've constructed. The structure is meant to symbolize both the end of harvest time, as farmers often lived in these structures out in their fields during harvest, as well as memorializing the temporary and fragile structures that the Israelites lived in when they were wandering the desert, right? After they were freed from Egypt. If you've ever wondered if it was like a tent or who knows, you know, it's kind of sort of like these, bigger though. Anyway, here are some pictures that I have found from different types of tabernacles people set up in various situations around the world. So the first one is in a city outside of a Hebrew school, um, and it looks to be 
it's coming. It looks to be, to me, clearly not this country, although I couldn't find exactly what country it's in. I thought it was really interesting, though, to see it set up on a city sidewalk. Right, like there's a motorcycle parked right there. Like it's like, I don't know, um, barbershop next door. But that's a Hebrew school, and that's why they've got it set up out in front like that. Um, and then on the next one, we can see a bunch of booths all set up next to each other. And then there's someone's little backyard tabernacle. And then finally, there's a picture of another backyard structure here in what appears to be like a suburban area probably, kind of a big house next to it. Um, and then the other one of the inside of one of these I found on Pinterest. Like, I don't know why that, I was like, oh, but of course there is. <laughs> Things I've never looked for before and discovered a whole side of the internet. Um, so. There you go. So this festival would also feature ceremonies that involved uh, the pouring out of water and lighting special lights in the temple. And in John's gospel, we find a few notable things happening. Jesus is not only teaching in the temple during the week of the festival, but he is teaching with a level of authority that amazes the listeners. Right? So recall from last week that only the rare few among the rabbis would offer new interpretations. But Jesus also draws parallels between himself and the water and the light. So in John 7, 37, 38, and I'm quoting from the message here so it won't match what you're holding, but Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Rivers of living water will brim and spill out of the depths of anyone who believes in me this way, just as the scripture says. And then Jesus says again of himself in chapter eight, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Both of these incidents caused a stir in the temple, to say the least, right, for him to be making such claims. But the point here, kind of right now, I mean, there's a whole, I had to edit a whole section of like talking more about that. The point right now is that Jesus, uh, these pretty well-known statements that he made about water and light happened within the context of a festival where both things were already key components. So turning over to John 10, we find Jesus again back in the temple for the festival of dedication. Now the word, oh, <laughs> I think that was Tim at Disneyland. Um, the word for uh, dedication is Hanukkah. So that's familiar to us, right? Hanukkah means dedication. We're likely already pretty familiar with this holiday with the lighting of the candles and giving of gifts over eight nights. There's an Adam Sandler movie, if you've seen it. Um, and I don't know about you, but I grew up in Southern California, and so in our public school, I grew up singing winter holiday songs in school, both about Rudolph and about a dreidel. So we know a little bit. Uh, but the holiday is actually a celebration of the rededication of the temple, right, the big temple in Jerusalem, after the Greek ruler Antiochus, uh, like 160 BCE, 160 BCE. So this Greek ruler had desecrated the temple in Jerusalem by installing a statue of Zeus. He was attempting to force the Jews to assimilate to Greek culture. This was kind of the way that they did, right? They would conquer and force assimilation. That was how they spread. And it worked other places. It was religious persecution and cultural genocide. The Jews, however, revolted. And they battled for like three years. It was this really long battle before finally declaring victory. 
and their very first action was to cleanse the temple and rededicate it to the God of Israel. The rededication was eight days of singing and feasting and also included lighting the menorah. So all they could find to fuel the lights, though, was a tiny jar of oil. Miraculously, this is the part that might be familiar, that oil lasted them all eight establishing the tradition each year of lighting lights for eight nights. Did I not give you, did the slide of the temple make it up there? I just wanted people to see, there we go. So just take a minute. This is a remodel, uh, or a, help me, a model of, we obviously didn't have photography in 160, um, but this is a model someone did. It looks very real. Um, and I couldn't really zoom in here for you in the slide, but I, looking at the staircases is always what I would try to do to, to help myself understand the scale, you know, of just how massive the complex was. The walls are like 15 stories high just to, again, help us understand how big these are, this, this beautiful big temple. All right, you can go blank again, thank you. <laughs> so we're now going to look to the final holiday mentioned in the Gospels, which is Passover. And scholars think that Passover is the most ancient, continuously observed religious ritual in the Western world. And indeed, in every Gospel account, Jesus and his disciples celebrate Passover. It's an annual festival, typically in March or April, and in the three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Passover is connected to Last Supper, which was the final meal Jesus shared with his disciples before he was arrested. You may be familiar with Passover. You likely are, but just in case. So Passover is the holiday in which the Jewish people have remembered the Exodus. It centers around a meal known as a Seder. There are 15 sections to the meal, and each has their own blessing and their own rituals, and the entire meal is designed to touch all of the senses and to give participants the experience of the journey from slavery into freedom. You may recall that while the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt, Moses was chosen by God to lead the people out of slavery. Pharaoh, the Bible says, hardened his heart against God and refused to release the people. So God sent plagues against the Egyptians that got worse and worse, and still Pharaoh would not relent. The final plague was the death of the firstborn of all living creatures, humans and animals. In order that they should survive this plague unscathed, God instructs the Israelites to slaughter a lamb and then use its blood to mark the doors of their homes, the posts and the lintel. The spirit of death, it is said, then passed over the houses of the nation of Israel. And this was the final event that broke Pharaoh's hardened will, and the people of God were released from their bondage. They were free. As Rosner describes it, during the annual Passover Seder, the Jewish people reenact and confront once again the pains of slavery, the tears of despair, and even the cries of the Egyptians. But we also commemorate the triumph of liberation, the joy of new beginnings, the mystery of God's power and love, and the hope that someday we'll make a proper home in the promised land. And to help us get an idea of what the holiday looks like these days, I found a few images that people had shared on the internet of their Passover tables, both like from Pinterest and other places. The first one I super love. Um, it was on someone's website who was sharing ideas for families with lots of kids. I don't know if you can tell in here, but those are like little Playmobil characters. <laughs> um, they even said they've used Legos before, too, as part of the storytelling. I just thought that was super cool. <laughs> 
Um, the, the image next to it is perhaps more of a typical arrangement, no Legos. <laughs> Um, the next two images are on the next slide are just to kind of reinforce the fact that people arrange their celebrations according to their preferences. One is quite elegant and the other very intimate and comfortable. And actually the tradition is to recline throughout the Seder if possible as a symbol of dining as a freed person. So whatever one's table looked like, the important thing was the annual remembrance and retelling of the story. So let's step back for a second. We have these three holidays, annual events on the Jewish calendar. As I said before, there are many more than just these, and there's also much more to learn about these three. And I mean, did I mention yet that I, I have a book list for you? <laughs> My email is on the church website if you want to get in touch with me. Okay. So really, we have these three holidays, though, and I would be remiss not to mention the favorite holiday for many Jewish people. As far as I gleaned in my research, the favorite holiday is Shabbat the weekly day of rest and worship. Shabbat begins at sundown on Friday evening and lasts until Saturday evening. And Judaism still teaches its adherents to honor Shabbat, and many, many do. Indeed, it is in the Ten Commandments. And this is the day too, as one author phrases it, rest from our usual labors. I like that. Now, wait, Christy, you may be thinking, you just said Shabbat, but isn't it Sabbath? Well, yes, Shabbat is for Jews and Sabbath is for Christians. So this is another example, I'm afraid, though, of the early church, somewhere around the second century, it is thought, making the decision to separate its rhythms from the rhythms of the Jewish people. So what was once celebrated on the seventh day of the week, per the commandment from the Lord, was shifted to the first day of the week as a way to differentiate, but also as a way to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. That happened on the first day of the week, too. And it was by this time, around the second century, that the weekly Sunday gatherings had become the practice of the Christian church. Um, but again, it was also tied into the effort to disassociate from the Jewish people. I'm always surprised by these threads of the parting of the ways of Judaism and Christianity. They're complicated, and they seem to like double back on each other when we least expect it. You know. Anyway, so we know Jesus honored the Shabbat commandment, as did the entire Jewish community. It was a command given out of love, knowing that humans really need quality rest in order to flourish. And while Christians do not celebrate Jewish Shabbat, we can learn to have, to quote Rosner, a Sabbath ethic. We can read about these rhythms. We can soak up the gravity with which the weekly Shabbat is approached. There are opening and closing rituals for the 24-hour Shabbat that include every sense. They will read prayers, they will sing songs, light special candles, drink wine. There are certain spices that are involved. It's that embodied faith again. And the ceremonies of welcoming and closing their Shabbat are a delight. May we learn, Christians, to develop a Sabbath day that we approach with delight. May it be a day where we truly rest from our usual labors and enjoy our God and community as Jesus did. But there's a little bit more here than just acknowledging that Jesus celebrated holidays as any Jewish rabbi would. Because as I said when I began today, we don't just believe Jesus was an unusually impressive rabbi. We believe that Jesus was incarnate God. And that means God chose again to step into time. The God who created time, God who exists outside of time. I can't even understand how that works, but God chose 
to then be bound by time. And within that time, God chose to honor the calendar. Jesus was observant and reverent and honored the holidays and also honored the weekly Sabbath. So my hope here is that we can appreciate the way that this emphasizes their value. Rabbi Moffick said, what we remember shapes who we are. So the lesson we can take from this review of Rabbi Jesus' life as a Jewish man who lived according to the rhythm of the Jewish calendar is, I think, that as I've said before, we were created for community. And within that community, within this community, our rituals matter, holidays matter, and our community matters. You know, while I was reviewing the Passover, and briefly mentioned the Last Supper, your mind may have gone to the communion table, Eucharist, the Lord's Supper. It is our tradition that Jesus gave us this new ritual to participate in together, and that it folds into what we believe about him as the foretold Messiah. Jesus, Rabbi and Messiah, Emmanuel, God with us, He honored ritual and rhythm and invited us into a new one that we can share together until he comes again. And so I wanted to end our series by sharing in communion together, for it is this meal, this table, that knits us together with our worldwide family and our little family right here. Communion, as N.T. Wright has said, is a moment in time where our past and our future meet right here in our present. What we choose to remember shapes our life. So Joe is going to lead us in communion this morning. And as we prepare our hearts to receive the elements, my prayer for us all is that we will remember our Jesus as he was when he walked among us, Jewish rabbi, friend. And may we open ourselves to the leading of the Holy Spirit. May we be bold in our trust and courageous in our love, always remembering that the kingdom of God is expansive and inclusive. Amen.